Welcome to a Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're recording the third edition of our series on the future of the Democratic Party. So that means we'll delve into who did well, who didn't do well in the most recent Democratic debate in Ohio. We'll talk about some of the key policy issues that were brought up during that debate. And we'll update our predictions for who we think is going to be the next nominee for president. And joining us today is our political correspondent, Brett Ewer. Brett, great to have you back. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So let's start at a high level. Who do you guys think did well and who do you guys think didn't do well in this most recent debate? Yeah, I mean, to me, I thought Yang and Buttigieg were my favorites. Um, Yang actually got more speaking time, which was really nice, and people started to acknowledge that UBI was, you know, a valid idea, which was really cool to see. And I just, I always like uh, Buttigieg's performance. He, he's very reasonable about everything, and I find that uh, really impactful, at least for what I'm looking for as, like, as a presidential candidate. To me, he just seems very presidential to me. Um, so those are those are the two that I liked. Others did well, but those are my two favorites. Yeah. Brett, what do you think? Uh, you know, I can't think of anyone that really stood out as doing a w- well and amazing, you know, uh, sort of a breakthrough. But I think, um, you know, I think uh, Amy Klobuchar did pretty well in terms of at least getting speaking time. And, you know, whether or not you agree with uh, her opinions, though she did have some, she did have some flops, like when she tried to make a joke about her daughter or something, and it just, <laughs> she, she had comedic pause and no one laughed. I, thought, <laughs> I mean, I laughed like two beats after because I was like, ooh, burn. Um, I thought Yang did pretty well. I mean, if you yeah. give him time, he speaks well. Um, it was really, I think, Elizabeth Warren's uh, debate to lose because she was the front runner. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think. I think everyone, uh, everyone, everyone did well, I think, but, uh, but not so well that I would think that, you know, there was any breakouts. Yeah, I agree. I think Biden sort of maybe didn't change much one direction or the other. I think Warren may have had the most to lose in that debate as well. And there were some moments where Warren came off as inauthentic. Um, I I thought that the moderates did do well. So I agree. I think Yang did really well. I thought Klobuchar did really well. Um, I actually thought Kamala Harris did the best of any of the debates so far. And interestingly, she has a new media strategy team. And, you know, I've been following her on Twitter and her tweets have gotten way better and way more frequent in the last mm. couple of weeks than they had before. So even though she still is maybe not like my favorite candidate and maybe she's not fully polished, I thought that compared to her previous debate appearances, which were pretty awful, that this one she actually, you know, had some good points. Um, Mm -hmm. So what do you guys think was the strategy of each candidate going into this debate? Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, I found it interesting that Harris very quickly talked about the abortion issue and how she's so pro-choice and that almost seemed to me like a little bit of like a political Hail Mary because she knows mm-hmm. she's she's far behind in the polls and she her strategist probably told her, hey, if you, you know, make this a key issue, that could be a way for you to jump up in the polls. And it was interesting that Cory Booker kind of tried to glom onto that 
but it was too late because Kamala had already established that issue as being, you know, something she really mm -hmm. cared about this debate. Yeah, I think I think the the strategy, you know, for Senator Warren uh, was to cement herself as the front runner because it's only very recently that she's been that she's been called that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, she only kind of edged out Biden in a few polls, and so then the media um, cycle, you know, just the the the, uh, you know, you can call them the deciders, whatever you want, in the media determined, okay, she's now the front runner, and so right. she was there really to cement things. I think Biden was there to uh, to chip away at that and to mm -hmm. reclaim his spot, and then I think for most everyone else, besides some other sort of minor, you know, plays, they were there to, uh, to, as you should, take down the front runner. Right. An interesting dynamic I, I enjoyed watching was um, uh, Beto O'Rourke and Pete Buttigieg's uh, interplay, where, you know, they're clearly going after the same uh, constituency. You know, mm -hmm. the, the same slice of the electorate, moderate Democrats uh, who are looking for that for a person with that kind of image. And I thought Buttigieg won handily in that in that yeah. uh, little flame war, which was fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. I, I really liked Buttigieg's takes, too, um, especially around the whole Syria and, you know, Kurdish issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I actually for this episode, I, I recorded some clips so we can actually listen to some of what these candidates said and then respond so on the point of Pete Buttigieg here's what they said around the Syria and Kurdish issue um, and this is Tulsi Gabbard and Pete Buttigieg talking Donald Trump has the blood of the Kurds on his hand but so do many of the politicians in our country from both parties who have supported this ongoing regime change war in Syria that started in 2011 I think that is dead wrong the slaughter going on in Syria is not a consequence of American presence. It's a consequence of a withdrawal and a betrayal. And when I was deployed, I knew one of the things keeping my, me safe was the fact that the flag on my shoulder represented a country known to keep its word. <laughs> what was interesting to me there is that Tulsi Gabbard was essentially making a point for isolationism, where we shouldn't have these regime change wars. And it's better if we sort of pull out from all of these disparate places where we have our military. And Buttigieg, who also is the other candidate who's actually been in the armed forces, is making the argument that what keeps America safe is the fact that we know and our allies know and our adversaries know that America keeps its word. And that's the greatest strength that America has. And so by pulling out and not keeping our word and not staying true to our allies that it's putting us at greater risk um, mm -hmm. so. that's exactly what you were talking about in the future of warfare as yeah, well when you yeah. put your values ahead of your you know your interests right and you know the interest is to save american lives that's that seems to be what tulsi gabbard is clinging on to and what a lot of americans trump for example is doing the same thing but pete Buttigieg, he's clinging on to our values and he wants to support our allies. And I really like that line of thinking. And I, I am more supportive of that idea than Tulsi Gabbard's idea. Yeah. yeah. I think regardless of the idea, you know, behind it and which, which, uh, which poll you support, um, you know, I think 
I think Tulsi Gabbard's strategy there is to uh, is to just kind of maybe not cement, but you know she's there to grab that wing of the party that is very uh, cognizant of you know our, our interventions, U.S. interventions over the past mm-hmm. you know three quarters of a century, uh, and she really wants to just bring them over to her camp because she knows that. I mean, she's pretty young. She's in her mid thirties, as is Buttigieg, and they both uh, they both are sticking around for a long time. I imagine mm-hmm. um, she probably she might have more staying power just because she's in a safe district in Hawaii. Um, but you know, she she I think she wants to put you know her flag in the in the soil there, uh, just because she wants to uh, bolster. Uh, support amongst you know a certain constituency right it seems like she's the furthest to the right of any of the candidates would you agree with that klobuchar seems like she's sort of right as well um but i haven't heard any of the other candidates attack the media in the way that tulsi gabbard has like i was pretty shocked Mm. when she said in the debate that you know the new york times and cnn have called me a russian asset and this is despicable and yeah. See, I actually liked it. And it's because I don't think that I don't think that being critical of the media is something that should be reserved for just the right wing. I think that the media tends to uh, tends to show the boundaries of acceptable debate. And oftentimes that does knock out, um, you know, that knocks out a lot of people on the right. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And it also but it also knocks out some ideas on the left. Uh, you know, it's the the idea if you want to if you want to crib from it, the idea of you know Chomsky's idea of manufacturing consent is that you really show exactly you know the borders of what you want to talk about, and anyone who talks outside of that is is crazy or a loon or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. without actually judging the merit of the ideas. So, yeah, I actually, I mean, I thought it took a lot of chutzpah, frankly, for her to do that, and yeah. I, you, you got to give it to her. I mean, at least at least she was speaking what she what she thinks, you know, she wasn't doing the, she wasn't doing the standard political game of, you know, just trotting out a line. Yeah. Right. I thought she did do well from a strategy perspective, but I don't know, I guess like my own, like someone tweeted this and it really resonated with me where it says that Tulsi Gabbard is like the character in a movie that you think is good. One of the good guys for the most of the movie, but at the top of the third act, you, you realize that it's actually a villain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. no, I think she... I, I don't. I don't really get that from her. Like, oh really? What, yeah, she seems like she's probably generally a good person. Like, what? What would you see as like her being like turning around and being a villain? I know that's sort of hyperbole, but like, in yeah, I guess I guess I just feel very strongly about the you know the Syria and Kurdish situation. Mm-hmm. So that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. And but yeah, and so you're I, more in line with. Uh, Pete's line of thinking there. Yeah, I really liked Pete's line of thinking there. Um, And then related to the Syria-Kurdish issue, the next thing we should talk about is how do you guys, how well do you guys think that Biden actually answered questions around his son, Hunter Biden, and those issues in in Ukraine? So I'm going to play that clip right now and then I'll, I'll get you guys to respond. If it's not okay for a president's family to be involved in foreign businesses, why was it okay for your son when you were vice president? Look, uh, my son did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. Rudy Giuliani, 
The president and his thugs have already proven that they, in fact, are flat lying. So he essentially deflected. He didn't really get into it. He just said, my son did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. It's all about Trump and his thugs. And he really didn't get into the details at all. He said, you know, my son's statement speaks for himself because Hunter Biden had released a statement the, the day of the debate. So I thought that the deflection was actually pretty effective, given that he was in a tough position to begin with. Uh, do you guys think that's that was true or do you think he could have had a better response? Yeah, I mean, it just seemed like his strategy was to make it a non-issue and just brush it off like it it didn't really matter. And that it seems like it was generally effective. I think the media attacked that answer. You know, they said that he did sort of uh, dodge the question, which mm -hmm. maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But I think it was generally effective. Yeah, I, I actually thought it was a decent dodge. I mean, yes, the media is going to, you know, they have time to to pick things apart afterward. But for most viewers, they're going to say, okay, it's already established. You know, I think the first question of the debate, the first thing that, that Cooper brought up was uh, about the impeachment. So we're already starting off with the right. idea that the president, you know, you don't really need to reinforce it too much for Democratic voters that the president is lying or has lied or continues to lie. So it's easy for for uh, Joe Biden to just deny and then pivot back to something which is more concrete and which mm -hmm. people do believe. And so they're going to latch on to that thing uh, because it's it's just easy, you know? Yeah. I, I actually thought it, it was a pretty effective uh, dodge for what is likely some there was probably some shady stuff going on yeah there. it was a little mm -hmm. swampy in the words mm -hmm. of hunter biden himself yeah but i mean what so sorry to I, i'm just curious and i don't mean to take us off of you know any but like what what exactly were hunter biden's qualifications i i, I honestly don't know i know that he's like an yeah. attorney but i like, don't i don't he, know and it does seem like one of the big reasons he got hired is because his dad was the vice president at the time, and his dad had fought, well, he was the point person on the Ukraine issue, the, the policy towards Ukraine. So yeah. if you're a Ukrainian energy company, obviously it's great to have the ear of the president when you mm -hmm. need things to get things done. But I haven't seen anything particularly nefarious that actually happened while Hunter Biden was on the board of the Ukrainian energy company. So it's not like... There's no obvious thing that he got passed that wouldn't have gotten passed uh, if we had just been considering what was best for America. So there's not mm -hmm. really something that damning. It's more just the optics of him being on the board of this company because yeah. it's super powerful. The appearance of impropriety. And, right. and, you know, I'm sure that even if he is not actively as a board member influencing his father, to change policy to the benefit of the company. He's probably at least, you know, he has his fingers on the pulse. He knows what's going on. So he can at least relay that to the company itself. And that's not particularly illegal. That's just selling someone's, you know, his intimate knowledge of a situation, um, right. which, you know, you can criticize, but it's, it's not, not really illegal. Yeah. I mean, that's how so much of politics works. I mean, look at, Rudy Giuliani's constituents, like 
they're all people that want the ear of President Trump. They're not people that think Rudy's like this fantastic lawyer. So it's it's there's definitely this double standard that's been going on. So I'm curious what you guys think of the exchange between Biden and Warren. So we all pretty much agree he had a good deflection when it comes to his son in Ukraine. But there, it did get a little bit heated between Biden and Warren about, you know, Biden's record when he says, I'm the only one who's gotten anything done. And then there was a very sort of, uh, you know, cutting response from Warren. So I'm going to play that and then get your guys thoughts. Thing that is probably going to offend some people here, but I'm the only one in the stage who's gotten anything really big done. But you know what you also got done? And I say this as a good friend. You got the disastrous war in Iraq done. You got a bankruptcy bill, which is hurting middle-class families all over this country. You got trade agreements like NAFTA and PNCR with China done, which have cost us 4 million jobs. So you started this question with how you got something done. You know, following the financial crash of 2008, I had an idea for a consumer agency. And I went on the floor and got you votes. I got votes for that bill. I convinced people to vote for it. So let's get those things straight, too. Senator Warren, do you want to respond? I am deeply grateful to President Obama, who fought so hard to make sure that agency was passed into law. Yeah, so, I mean, you can hear even the audience was like, oh, I mean, that was the biggest burn of the night. Where she's basically saying, oh, yeah, it was really Obama. You had pretty much nothing to do with it. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think of, of that exchange. I thought she did really well there. Uh, it was a great way of acknowledging, yes, you, you probably, I mean, he probably did do something. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. He probably did whip votes or whatever, but it was under the, it was under Obama's auspices. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, he's been playing this, uh, Biden has been playing this whole game throughout his campaign and in the past debates where he keeps saying, well, we did this. We got this done under Obama. We got this done, and I was a part of that. He's really, you know, taking on Obama's mantle. Uh, but then, whenever there's anything bad about Obama, he's like, "Hey, listen, that that wasn't me." Or like, I was, it was the vice more... president, and I stand yeah. by Obama. But yeah, it's hard to have yeah. it both ways. And I thought she she threaded that needle masterfully. <laughs> she yeah. she gave credit to the person that probably should get the credit for it. Um, but, you know, his initial claim of I'm the only one that's gotten stuff done up here. The fact that anyone that everyone on the debate stage has to talk about Medicare for all in the span of four years since it was, you know, really pushed. And right. And is, Bernie wrote the damn bill. So to say it, that he hasn't gotten anything done is absurd. It, yeah. It, I mean, it's you could even say the fact that Yang has talked about UBI so much and he's beaten that drum and now other candidates have to talk about it. Right. That is getting something done. People are, that's, there are now, you know, news articles and op-eds and it's in the public discussion. We're talking about UBI. Right. I mean, 10 years ago, probably not. So, you know, getting something done does not always mean passing a crime bill that was horrible for the country <laughs> or or getting us into a you know and i guess here i betray my my allegiances but uh you know it, it, it doesn't uh, a mess and yeah, there yeah. Are, not everything was perfect well mm-hmm. that actually brings us to the next thing i want to bring up which is 
Yang's position on the value added tax as opposed to the wealth tax. And this was a big issue for all the candidates in this most recent debate. I, I thought this was actually Warren's weakest moment because she would not say that the taxes would actually go up for middle class Americans. And it, it, it just came off to me as something where if she had that sort of response in a debate with Trump, she would just get eaten alive. But I want to play that clip. Um, there's actually three little clips about the wealth tax because it was such a big issue in the debate. Um, and then I want to hear your guys' thoughts. I want to give a reality check here to Elizabeth because no one on this stage wants to protect billionaires. Not even the billionaire wants to protect billionaires. Uh, we just have different approaches. Your idea is not the only idea. You have not specified how you're going to pay for the most expensive plan, Medicare for all. Will you raise taxes on the middle class? I have made clear what my principles are here, and that is costs will go up for the wealthy and for big corporations and for hardworking middle class families. Costs will go down. A yes or no question that didn't get a yes or no answer. (laughs) So Buttigieg said it. I mean, yeah. All American people want is a straightforward politician that's going to really tell them what the truth is. But I'm curious if you have a different political take, Brett, if, if you think that if she had been straightforward, if that would have had a downside where it would have been headlines like, you know, Warren's plan does have middle taxes go up. So what, what do, yes. you, do you think that was the right move or the wrong move? It's, it's a trick question. And the way to get around that is to not give into the trick and say, Yes, taxes go up, premiums disappear. I mean, that is the point of Medicare for all is that, yeah, your payroll tax goes up. But, you know, if I'm, I'm sure you, you know, all of us have received a paycheck. We all see, OK, there's the federal, you know, here's the federal slice, the state slice. And, you know, here's your FICA. And then there's and then you see your your health insurance premium is taken out if you're lucky and get health insurance through through your job. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, she just needs to say they need to come up with a pithy way to say taxes go up, premiums disappear. And they need to come up with a snappy, good sound bite so that you come across as honest, but you 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 get across the point that for the overwhelming majority of people, you aren't seeing any dent in your paycheck. It's just a reallocation of where the money's going. Is it going toward a government program that can negotiate en masse with uh, drug manufacturers or any other service providers, medical service providers, or is it going to go to a patchwork of private institutions that, you know, have different pathways for people depending on how much they pay? Mm-hmm. Um, they just need to come up with a, you know, Senator Warren and and to some extent Bernie need to come up with a better way of explaining that. Because yeah. right now it's there's a trick question that's always trotted out. Are taxes going to go up? Yeah, they are. But but it's not going to affect the vast majority of people. And the more that you dodge it, the more you seem inauthentic. Totally. Yeah. Any thoughts, Justin? Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much agree with that. And I do. It does seem like she's being a little idealistic by saying that costs won't go up in the in the middle class or for the middle class and thinking that a wealth tax can pay for everything and that taxing corporations can pay for everything that that just seems like her her biggest weak point like her 
the cost of this healthcare plan is ridiculous, and she still has yet to really come up with an argument or come up with something that convinces me that it's possible that she can pay for this. Right, especially because she doesn't. She's not proposing a public option. She's proposing yeah. that we only have public single payer healthcare. So she's essentially guaranteeing that the the system that's run by the government is going to be more efficient than the system we have today and therefore hmm. overall costs will go down. And it's just hard to promise that knowing how inefficient the government runs sometimes. Yeah. But but to that oh sorry, go ahead. No, I I, I do want to just add an, a, a you know, a slight addendum is that the 3 trillion dollar figure that's that's um, deployed often comes from uh, a study by uh, the Mercatus Center, which is largely funded by uh, you know the Koch network, um, mm-hmm. and and is you know pretty publicly right wing, um, or you know, uh, maybe not right wing but free market. So mm-hmm. you know there is we should be examining whether that is the right figure one whether it's you know truly thirty trillion dollars over ten years. I've seen uh, rebuttals from think tanks like People's Policy Project, for example, uh, issued a white paper that dissected that claim and said, no, that's wrong and misleading. Um, so, you know, I think ultimately we have to be examining the questions themselves to see what, you know, assumptions are in there. Yeah. Well, I did see a, a fact check from the Washington Post on the debate where there was one moment where Biden said that look, the, the plan is so expensive that Warren's proposing that even if you got rid of the Pentagon, got rid of all military spending, it would only pay for four months of Medicare for all. But the Washington Post fact-checked it and they found that it would actually pay for two years. So the numbers are not always the most accurate that these politicians bring up, but mm-hmm. it is a super expensive plan and there's no guarantee that it'll be more efficient than you know, the free market insurance, even though it's a pretty awful system we have right now. Mm -hmm. But to both of your guys' points about, you know, this being something where Elizabeth Warren has really shown some weakness, I thought that Beto O'Rourke actually showed his greatest strength during this issue where he talked about the wealth tax and how, you know, it wasn't necessarily the best path forward. So here's, here's that. Let me just make sure I get the right one. Senator Warren is is more focused on being punitive or, or pitting some part of the country against the other. I'm really shocked at the notion that anyone thinks I'm punitive. Uh, look, I don't have a beef with billionaires. We need a wealth tax in order to make investments in the next generation. Okay, and now listen to what Yang has to say in response, which is pretty brilliant. Mm -hmm. Senator Warren is 100% right that we're in the midst of the most extreme winner-take-all economy in history. And a wealth tax makes a lot of sense in principle. The problem is that it's been tried in Germany, France, Denmark, Sweden, and all those countries ended up repealing it because it had massive implementation problems and did not generate the revenue that they projected. If we can't learn from the failed experiences of other countries, what can we learn from? We should not be looking to other countries 
uh, mistakes. Instead, we should look at what Germany, France, Denmark, and Sweden still have, which is a value-added tax. If we give the American people a tiny slice of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every robot truck mile, every Facebook ad, we can generate hundreds of billions of dollars and then put it into our hands because we know best how to use it. Gosh, I just, I love his persuasiveness, this debate. It was so good. And by the way, the Washington Post fact-checked his claim and they fact-checked it as correct. All of those Mm. countries did have a wealth tax. All nine of them repealed the wealth tax and they still have a value-added tax in place that appears to be working just fine. I've read that there are some, and I don't remember where I read it, so take this with a grain of salt, but I've read that there are some uh, constitutional issues with implementing a wealth tax that it might not actually be constitutional. So mm-hmm. it would be interesting one to see whether you could whether you could pass that um, or, you know, whether that well, could, let's talk uh, for a second about what a wealth tax actually means, because the you know, for for some people, it's it's unclear why it's problematic. But when you think of a really wealthy person's assets, Typically, we've only taxed their income. So some percentage of their income goes to income taxes. What's being proposed with a wealth tax is that your whole net worth. So if you're Tom Steyer and you're worth you know, more than a billion dollars, they will essentially take you know, 2% of your net worth, which could be you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And most of it's not liquid. So mm-hmm. either the billionaire would have to liquidate their assets or they'd have to give over, you know, like Monet paintings or whatever, you know, whatever they have that's that's in yeah. illiquid form, which, you know, sounds like, oh, who cares? They're billionaires like they should, you know, what's two percent of their net worth to them? The problem is that it's really messy and, you know, billionaires can hire the best possible accountants and lawyers and, you know, do whatever they need to to make sure that they give away as little as possible in such a wealth tax, which is why it was so messy when it was implemented in other countries. So it's surprising that Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, prides herself on being so good about always having a plan and always, you know, doing research that she would still propose this, even though it's been tried in other countries and has failed. I think the reason she really proposed it in the first place was because she was trying to outflank Bernie on the left. I think a lot of people recognized, hey, wait, this guy, in his words, wrote the damn bill for Medicare for all. And now everyone's kind of clamoring for that. He was, you know, the original or at least for 2016, he was the original left, uh, you know, left leaning left voice uh, for the Democratic Party. And so I think she she needed to come up with something that would try to persuade people in that camp to come over to her. But you're right. There are massive implementation problems, even with our cursory. None of us are accountants um, with our cursory knowledge of of, you know, how wealth and, and net worth works. I mean, from what I understand, many billionaires or high net worth individuals can just set up shell companies mm-hmm. and they don't even need to be in the US. Uh, they don't even need to be in Panama or the Caymans or, you know, Cook Islands or whatever. You can uh, you can just set them up in North Dakota or in Nevada, you know, asset mm-hmm. protection trusts and and it's untouchable. It's a legally separate entity. So I, I, I do wonder about implementation there. Yeah, it seems like it could also make it more difficult for Warren to fundraise. I know that, you know, I read an article that said that 
essentially Wall Street has said that if Warren's the nominee, we're sitting this one out. We're not investing anything to help the Democrats win, even though we think that Trump should probably no longer be president because there's some volatility as a result of that. So I wonder if while Warren did a good job of riling up the base of the, you know, the further left uh, cohort, she may actually have sort of shot herself in the foot if she does become the nominee, because that sort of proposal in the general election seems to be fairly problematic when you're going up against someone as politically savvy as Trump. Out of the three front runners, uh, Biden's uh, Biden's donors are, I would say, largely from the upper class or upper middle class. Uh, uh, Bernie's are from the working class and the middle class. And then for uh, Senator Warren, they're often from the middle class, but but more often, I think, from a sort of upper middle class, a professional class. So people like lawyers or doctors or professors or, you know, well-off professionals who have advanced degrees, uh, you know, they, they, I think, tend to, to skew toward her. So, you know, I could see them being sympathetic toward taxing vast amounts of wealth that the upper class would not be comfortable with. Um, so, you know, it just makes sense for her to, to propose it, but I don't know how defensible it really is. Mm hmm. Yeah. Now, there's just one other clip that I want to show you guys and get your feedback on, and then we can talk about that and then maybe get into the future scenarios. And this clip is about the ish, the idea that Bernie proposed about a federal jobs guarantee, and then Yang refuting that as not perhaps being the best idea. So let's listen to that. Why is giving people $1,000 a month better than Sanders' plan to get guaranteeing them a job? I am for the spirit of a federal jobs guarantee, but you have to look at how it would actually materialize in practice. What are the jobs? Who manages you? What if you don't like your job? What if you're not good at your job? The fact is, most Americans do not want to work for the federal government. And saying that that is the vision of the economy of the 21st century, to me, is not a vision that most Americans would embrace. Also, Senator Sanders description of a federal jobs guarantee does not take into account the work of people like my wife who's at home with our two boys one of whom is autistic we have a freedom dividend of a thousand dollars a month it actually recognizes the work that is happening in our families and our communities it helps all americans transition because the fact is and you know this in ohio if you rely upon the federal government to target its resources you wind up with failed retraining programs and jobs that no one wants when we put the money into our hands, we can build a trickle-up economy. From our people, our families, and our communities up, it will enable us to do the kind of work that we want to do. This is the sort of positive vision in response to the fourth industrial revolution that we have to embrace as a party. What do you guys think? Smart again. I mean, it. He he's really realistic about these policies and i think i think there are definitely idealistic policies that are coming from sanders and warren's camps and yang is just the guy that's like look this probably isn't the best idea in practice for these reasons like it a federal jobs guarantee seems really silly to me like yeah, for could you exactly even the reason what that would look like. I mean, I mean, it, it would look exactly like socialism or communism. Like that's yeah. exactly what that is. And I just think I think that would lead to potentially even more 
you know, drug abuse just because unhappiness spreads. Like, I, I just think there's so many issues that that right. could cause that it, it's, you know, I think they're very uh, smartly addressed by Yang. Uh, you know, I think a federal jobs guarantee would look like something probably like the New Deal. Uh, the question is, is where would we allocate the resources? And Yang has some good points. I mean, what if people hate their jobs? What if what if they what if we you know, what, what sectors are we going to be investing in where we have you know, federal dollars and and uh, people recruited into these positions? I do think that the, there are some benefits to to it, though, uh, you know, in comparison to uh, UBI. So I think just receiving a stipend or receiving you know, some basic income detached from some sort of contribution to a society uh, could actually increase a feeling of alienation. So if you're not doing a job that contributes to people, you know, contributes to, well, for example, I, I was traveling recently and I, I traveled over a bridge that was built by the uh, Works Progress Administration in the 30s. And I still feel a connection to all of those programs by the fact that there are thousands of people driving over that bridge every day. And, you know, for people that are working, there is a sense of community reinforcement there. But, you know, Yang's criticism does ring out. I mean, there are some there are some issues with that and it would be a massive undertaking. I mean, I would think, you know, one of the things that they might want to implement would be like a national child care program. That's like that's almost like instituting another layer of schools across the entire country. I mean, that's that's huge. I mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily opposed, but it would be fascinating to see how that's implemented. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the sentiment behind the jobs guarantee is good, but I think a better approach would be if you just had some massive new infrastructure project, like for instance, climate change and green energy and renewable energy, and you hire many Americans to help out with that. And maybe a lot of the Americans are former manufacturing workers that no longer have a job. I think that's fantastic. But to guarantee that every working adult will have a job, to me, that would just allow the phenomenon of bullshit jobs to flourish. And we've talked about this in the podcast in the past, but essentially jobs where you're basically just looking at the clock, waiting until it's 5 p.m. because you're not actually contributing value to society. You know it's bullshit. Your employer may know it's bullshit. But it's seen as the only reasonable way that we can distribute money to society because there's this notion that unless you have a job, you don't deserve anything from the government. So, But I see your point, uh, Brett, that there is the risk of, yeah, if you give everyone enough money that they can just play video games and masturbate all day, will people do anything else? And, you know, maybe part of that is you have to meet certain criteria to get the UBI. Like you have to note what you do, you know, each day, even if it's your own sort of passion project or caring for kids or, or that sort of thing. You know, I just want to go on record right now and say that if I receive UBI, I promise to the American people that I will do nothing but masturbate and play video games. <laughs> I hope that I'm glad this is being recorded right now. Uh, you know, please trot this out in the future. No, no, I, I think that's a good point, too, is that we need to decouple the idea of 
yes, there people get satisfaction from working or from doing a project or from seeing something grow and bring something to completion. And I, I do support the idea of a UBI. I think we should, I think we should decouple the idea of survival and work. Right. That's just such a, that's just such an ass backwards idea. It's this yeah. weird, like Puritan, like I need a buckle on my hat or whatever idea for, uh, for how society should work. Yeah. yeah. Does it seem like people would actually, you know, masturbate and play video games all day though? Like really it seems well, some human people nature would, would, but I'm sure some people would, but at the same time, those people, those people are probably going to do that anyways. And you know, I think, I think with a UBI, people would be more willing to be entrepreneurial or go volunteer at, at nonprofits and people would still be contributing to society and they would have the energy to do so. Cause right now with these bullshit jobs and with totally unenjoyable jobs, people just get back from work and they, they've lost all their energy. Like they, they mm-hmm. don't want to do anything. And I think if you have that a little bit of a, you know, guarantee that you're going to make income, you can at least eat and put, you know, you can sleep in a bed with a roof, you know, over your head. I think that's, that's going to lead to things like that could pretty much lead to peak human existence. If we decouple our work from survival, kind of like you guys have said. So I I really don't think we'll, we'll get into a situation with UBI where people are totally unwilling to do anything and stay inside all day. Yeah, Rucker Bregman has a book, Utopia for Realists, where he pretty much goes through all of the times that UBI has been tried throughout history. And the results are pretty uh, positive across the board, meaning Mm -hmm. people do not tend to just sit around and do nothing. They do tend to, you know, if they're not working on their own passion project, they're helping out, you know, take care of their kids or, you know, wives will leave abusive husbands. And there are all of these positives from that sort of a, a change. So it does seem like the common refrain against UBI is that, oh, you really have that much trust in human nature to actually do something good with that money? Like, come on, we all know people. People are just going to screw around. And Rucker Bregman has this interesting counterpoint where he says, people kind of behave how you treat them. If you treat people as just these worthless people that don't deserve money and, you know, you got to force them to do some work or force them to prove that they're trying to get a job, but they can't get a job, only then do they deserve something like welfare. And but if you flip it and you treat people as potential innovators and people who can contribute to their communities by taking care of the elderly or taking care of kids or disabled people, then it's more likely that they'll respond in that way. Yeah, people res- people respond to positive social reinforcement. And, you know, that's why I think, you know, forgiveness as a general virtue is is a good one is because people need to at least have that basic level of comfort and reinforcement and understanding that they aren't alone. And then from there, they can go off and do great things. You just need to invest in people. And, you know, Justin, to the point you made about people being guaranteed food and, and a shelter, uh, you know, and a bed, a roof. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there are multiple ways to go about that. Whether or not you want to have UBI, I think that's mm-hmm. it's a pretty flexible way of doing it that is a good way to merge us from, or, or, or glide us from a market 
based economy from you know strict capitalism to something I think possibly more equitable, you might still be able to do the same thing with um, with. Well, I guess we have a patchwork of programs already to guarantee housing and mm-hmm. and food. It's just that they're again a patchwork. Well, there's too and, much you know. bureaucracy in order to get any of that, and there's so much bureaucratic gloat that's taking so much money away from taxpayers that if we that's the, that's why I like UBI because there's no bureau bureaucracy. You're literally just distributing money to people. There's no one thinking, hmm, should I approve this person's housing? Let me yeah. see how I feel and let me look at their paperwork and require additional paperwork. It's like we got to move away from that and move towards an efficient automated economy like mm. America being Amazon. Like That's the way we're going to compete. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I've just this debate. I know I said this at the beginning, but I, I've liked Yang before, but I just really liked him after this debate, given his responses to all of these things. And, you know, talking about freedom and forgiveness, he was also talking about how, you know, he would decriminalize opiates and have uh, free injection centers that people can use yeah. to to go even for heroin. And that's something we've talked about Switzerland having huge success with. Mm-hmm. is having these injection sites where people can go and be safe about it. Yeah, you don't treat them like criminals. You treat them like addicts who can actually get better if you give them the right resources and guidance. Yeah, and, and it, it's, it's not the a same sort of failing. thing of like people behave how you yeah, treat them. Addiction is not a moral failing. And I think I think it would be great if uh, if Yang suggested that anyone who did think it was a moral failing and that, you know, you need to crack down on criminals um, and that, you know, people can overcome addiction or whatever. A- anyone who wants to claim that uh, they're free to take heroin and try and see if they can <laughs> live a normal life after that. But you aren't. I mean, it's it's just it's it's a completely wrong way of approaching things to, to criminalize addiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to pause and then get into our future scenarios. All right. So what do you guys think is the worst case scenario for the future of the Democratic Party? Worst case scenario. Yeah, I think one of the things we saw in this debate and previous debates is there's a lot of fighting between Democrats and attacking between them. You know, they're, each candidate is potentially attacking other can, another Democratic candidate. And I think when this is projected out to the country, then it it causes Democrats to lose confidence in their own party, which is not a good thing. And maybe this is a consequence of having 12 people up on the debate stage. I'm not sure. But it... <clears throat> I think in the worst case, there is, you know, something like this and, you know, this these theatrics lead to Trump being reelected. Like, that's always just the worst case for me is Trump is reelected. And and I think that, you know, maybe maybe we need to narrow down the field again because it got a little broad um, in this last debate. But anyways, that's that's sort of my worst case is just Trump being reelected because of, you know, a self-inflicted wound by the Democratic Party. I agree. I think for uh, the worst possible future for viewers is to have uh, debates with more than five people. Uh, 
my hope is that um, I guess the worst case is if we continue to have people who are effectively the same in terms of policy. I mean, yes, there are differences between, uh, you know, Buttigieg and and O'Rourke and Harris, um, but many of them have core policies that are similar. Um, My hope is that soon enough, uh, those will, you know, uh, voters and and the constituencies that are sympathetic to uh, those candidates will coalesce under one. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. I think the worst case is for us to continue dragging on, on and on. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have a very similar one, which is whatever results in the biggest punching bag for Trump when it comes to the general. And to me, that is people like Warren making concessions that may play well to the Democrats. But once you get into the general and then you're trying to argue about raising middle class taxes and arguing about implementing a wealth tax that is pretty much been proven to fail in other countries, that sort of stuff is just going to allow the Democratic nominee to get eaten alive by Trump. And, you know, I mean, I guess if we're going real worst case, like it could be, you know, Trump could like actually become a dictator and then we could have Pence as like the puppet candidate, you know, sort of like situation with Putin because there's been, uh, you know, New York Times Daily, for instance, released an episode today about how U.S. diplomats have have begun to be systematically replaced by Trump officials that are pretty much just loyal to Trump. They're not loyal to the ideals of the State Department or of whatever, you know, wherever or of America, they're just loyal to this one man. And if we allow that to continue for long enough, we could find ourselves in a similar sort of government like Russia, where it's like essentially, you know, the cult of personality and it's it's uh, run in sort of a mobster kind of way. Um, I don't want to overstate it, but if I'm thinking what's the actual worst case, it would be that. So let's transition to the best case scenario. What do you guys think is the best case scenario for the future of the Democratic Party? Can I just add something before we continue? Sure. Is, is, you know, constitutionally, you think about how Putin has been able to pretty much hold the reins of power by switching between being prime minister and president and how there's a division there. And we don't, you know, we just, we don't have that. The way I could see Donald Trump is, retaining a lot of his uh, power is after he serves, you know, in his first or you know potentially second term as president, he goes on to uh, found or uh, be part of a media empire where he hosts his own show and effectively becomes kingmaker for whichever, uh, whichever Republican or conservative candidates are running. So, you know, he brings him on his show. He's ultimately the decider who, you know, in backroom deals determines who's going to be the nominee uh, for any large or or position of great importance. Um, You know, that's a way I could see it playing out. He is the Uh, deep state. Yeah. And, you know, in a way that in a way that uh, Republicans, you know, they always go back and say, well, you know, I'm a Reagan Republican or, you know, they always they always fall back to Reagan and lionize him. It's it's possible that, you know, if there's a party shift and the Republicans fundamentally change a few planks in their platform, that Trump could then be that 
that kind of uh, lionized figure. And he could stick around in media and continue to just act as, as Kingmaker. So I, I just wanted to add that because it, it just popped up and I thought, oh, that would be uh, terrifying, but also kind of interesting. Right. So, Especially yeah. if the isolationism trend continues, because you could see that if the U.S. continues to pull out of the Middle East, pull out of these places and allow countries like Russia and Iran and ISIS or to fill in the gaps, then you could see them arguing, oh, good thing we're out of there. Look how big of a mess it is. And we basically just allow the world to become more and more messy. And then with confirmation bias, we just think of that as being the brilliance of Trump, of thank God he got us out of there. Whereas the reality is that it wouldn't be nearly as messy if we had stayed. Yeah, he would be something akin to like a souped up version of like Nigel Farage, the the UK Independence Party guy. You know, he's also a little bit of a media pundit and, you know, seems to me like he's a he's kind of a one note uh, instrument. But but, you know, I could see I could see uh, Donald Trump becoming something like that after his presidency. Again, terrifying. Yeah. All right. Well, let's flip it into the unterrifying best case scenario. What do you guys hope will happen? Best case scenario. Yeah, so with my best case, I think that, well, really, I think a lot of the Democrats are really diagnosing issues that we, and a lot of Americans see what the issues are. The problem is actually implementing policy that will fix, you know, systemic issues and misaligned incentives that has let, you know, our capitalistic system run amok as, as they've been talking about. But I don't, I don't think it really matters who on the debate stage is elected. I have my preference. I would like to see Yang in there. I would like to see beta or I would like to see uh, Buttigieg in there. Um, maybe, Maybe Warren. We'll see. I mean, I, I like Warren. I think there are some issues. I have some issues, but I like I like how real some of these candidates are. Like Buttigieg, for example, in the Supreme Court um, overhaul and like allowing fifteen Supreme Court um, justices rather than nine, um, and Yang's UBI. I think these sorts of things can potentially fix the issues. And that's sort of what I'm wanting in my best case is it doesn't really matter who's in there as long as they're fixing some of the systemic uh, issues um, that our country has. So, yep. Yeah. Well, I would say for, for my best case, it is actually that someone like Yang, maybe Yang himself, rockets the top of the polls because a figure like Yang I mean, as his slogan states, he's not left, he's not right, he's forward. So having someone who speaks about the economy and can speak to people in places like Ohio and Iowa and places that have been hard hit by automation and job loss, but not to make it political would be the best case scenario for our country. And it would allow us to get out of this like partisan divide and sort of see the chessboard from up above rather than being you know, right in the position of like one of the pieces on the chessboard. So that that would be my best case scenario. But how likely it is, you know, we'll have to see. There, there still is a decent amount of, a t of time before the election. 
but you know he would have to have a serious meteoric rise to to get there. Yeah, I, I think a best case one would be for the Democratic parties, uh, you know, for the nominees to be pruned a little bit, trim the hedges, you know, like <laughs> let's 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 consolidate yeah. some of the people that fundamentally have the same general ideas, um, mm -hmm. you know, the centrist Dems. Let's you know collapse, <laughs> let's yeah. collapse them into one and and go forward. Um, you know, I, I'm obviously a, a pretty big Bernie guy, but uh, so, you know, I, I would still like to see him go forward. However, I, I would like to see Yang do pretty well, too. I think one positive that I, I've never heard any other, you know, I haven't heard any commentators say is that uh, the Democratic Party after the 2016 election suffered a massive loss of confidence um, from from its own members. One, the DNC itself lost uh, a lot of confidence from its own members and from the general public, uh, viewing it as largely corrupt. And, you know, there is a case to be made that there were some actions taken that weren't great. Like there was a joint fundraising agreement between Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC while there was an ongoing primary. Clearly not fair. So I think uh, what Yang's nomination, what his candidacy and what his nomination would do would uh reinforce that the Democratic Party is willing to listen to voters and is willing to nominate who they elect, who they, you know, who they choose. And also, he is one of the most, you know, people voted for Trump because, not because of his policy ideas, they voted for him because he was authentic mm -hmm. and because he was, he was not business as usual in Washington, which wasn't working for so many people across the country. With Yang, he's, I mean, he's fresh. He's comfortable in his own skin too. Yeah, and and you know he I, he doesn't need know. canned statements. You could ask him anything. Yeah, and he'll tell you the truth, even if you mm -hmm. don't like it, and even if it's not going to support his candidacy. He's had a few missteps where I'm like, oof, dude. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I think that I think that he could do well, and yeah, no, I, I I think I think you know I would like for for Bernie to ultimately be the nominee because of his ideas. Uh, and because of what he stands for. But I think uh, Yang, for me, is, is probably a second. Then with Warren, uh, you know, probably probably third or tied with Yang. Nice. So now let's round it out with the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. So in the past, we talked about how most likely scenario is either Biden or Warren win the nomination, and then perhaps Biden has a somewhat better chance of beating Trump compared to Warren in the general. I'm curious if you guys still think that is the most likely scenario, or if you have a different take. Yeah, I pretty much think that still. I still think that Biden will probably get the nomination. I don't know if um, the DNC will, you know, select not, you know, not one um, one of the. I don't know if they will select anyone that's not one of the top three. I really don't think they'll they'll select Sanders. You know, I, I just mm -hmm. I think that that's just how they are, and that I don't know. It seems likely that Biden will be the candidate, um, but I do think that he has a shot at beating Trump. I don't know if he has the best shot out of everybody on the stage, but in terms of most likely, he will probably get. Uh, the nomination, and then we'll probably um, have a chance to beat Trump. So we'll see. I'm curious what you guys think. 
I think the most likely scenario is we're going to have a sorry to step on you there, Matt, but uh, is that it's it's going to be a brokered convention. So depending on how the first primaries and caucuses go, there's going to be some jockeying between uh, the more establishment candidates uh, to figure out who has the greatest likelihood of success. And then those voters are going to follow the lead of their candidates and they're going to support the other candidate who's secured support from uh, you know the, the candidates least likely to win. So I'm thinking people like, you know, I think Pete Buttigieg and, and Biden are probably the ones with the greatest likelihood of being the uh, the establishment wing nominee. And then, you know, it's going to be a brokered convention. I mean, Bernie's going to put up a pretty strong showing. Same with Warren, too. And then they're going to have to decide, you know, how they want to piece it together, whether there's going to be horses traded, whether there needs to be specific additions of, you know, certain planks to the platform or uh, guarantees that, uh, you know, certain people will be nominated to specific positions within the cabinet. That's that is the most sure thing I can give you is that I, it's it's got to be a broker convention. If you had to pick just one, though, who would you pick? In terms of most likely, just most likely, yeah, I bet it will probably be. Uh, oof, tough, probably Warren, just because she she yeah. unites both wings of the party. Yeah, that, you know, actually, I, I it kind of does feel like maybe Warren may be more likely than Biden now. That's kind of my feeling. But it still seems like it could go either way. And I still think that Warren is going to get eaten alive by Trump more likely than Biden. Because even if even if Trump really goes hard at Biden, it'll kind of be seen as really mean. Because, you know, Biden's like an old, nice guy who fumbles and, you know, so I think that dynamic will just play better for Biden than the dynamic of Trump versus Warren, where, you know, he has some some real ammunition that he could unleash on her policies and, you know, that sort of thing. So. But, yeah, well, we'll see as it gets closer to the actual election, how it changes. So do you guys have any any final thoughts? I'll just say uh, during the uh, debates, I was in Columbus, Ohio, uh, pretty close to Otterbein University, and I got to talk with a lot of people there. Um, and it was surprising how many people really came out for in support for uh, Biden. I'll say that in Ohio, at least in Columbus, at least at the at the uh, restaurant that I was at, uh, <laughs> most people. Well, OK, let's let's not lie here. It was a bar uh, at the bar that I was at. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it served food, so I feel like yeah. I can cover there. But uh, most of the Lots people of there... people with, uh, short, with short memories. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Short memories uh, that's, you know, not not necessarily just older folks, too. It was yeah. There were a lot of younger folks there, too. And it, I, I was surprised. There were a lot of uh, people coming out for Biden. So, who knows? All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, guys, for contributing. This has been the Future of the Democratic Party, Part 3. And, what will and we'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.
Hey futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.